Welcome to Postpartum Stories with Steph, candid conversations with mums and sometimes dads about the precious yet chaotic time that is life after birth. My name is Steph, woman, warrior, wife, mother, coffee lover and feminist. I'm a postpartum doula in Melbourne and you can find me on Instagram at postpartum underscore with underscore Steph with a PH. Through this podcast, I will chat to women and birthing people in a real and raw way about their postpartum experience. So sit back, grab a cuppa, even if it's cold, take off your bra and enjoy. Before I get into today's episode, I just wanted to quickly tell you about another birth-related podcast that I've been loving lately. It's called Keep Birth Wild. It's all about sharing stories of planned home birth. And I think it's something that will be of value to my listeners because in Melbourne at the moment, you know, hospital births are just coming with a lot of restrictions and people are feeling a lot of resistance around hospital birth and home birth is becoming a really um, beneficial option for a lot of people. So this podcast uh, is hosted by Indy and she interviews women and birthing people who chose to deliver their babies at home. It includes home birth stories with a diverse range of outcomes, including hospital transfers and cesareans, as well as many beautiful stories of babies born at home. This is a podcast for anyone who is planning, growing, or has just birthed babies. I will leave all of Indy's details of the show in the show notes, um, and you can find her at keepbirthwild.podcast on Instagram. So check that one out today. Welcome to episode 18 of Postpartum Stories with Steph. Today's episode is with Dr. Sophie Brock, and I'm so excited to bring this one to you today. Sophie is a sociologist who specializes in motherhood studies, and she's a single mother to her three-year-old daughter. She became a single mother under fairly unusual circumstances, which I will let Sophie explain uh, in the podcast. Um, But she shares so openly and so candidly about her early postpartum experience and how during that time she became a single mum. Her work advocates for the liberation of mothers from the myths of perfect motherhood, which is something I think all mothers, you know, need to read and understand as there is no perfect mother. And she also hosts her own podcast called The Good Enough Mother. Uh, You can connect with her on Instagram at Dr. Sophie Brock. And I will leave all of her other website and contact details in the show notes. Uh, I really hope you enjoy this one today. And um, if you're up for it, please leave a review, a glowing review, and um, a five-star rating would be fabulous as well. I hope that you have a lovely day. Uh, Sophie, Dr. Sophie Brock, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and who's in your life? Sure. I like that introductory question, who's in your life? Um, Mm. I think because actually 
that's a really nice way to open conversation to recognize the relationality of us with others. So seeing that we're in relationship with others. And so, yeah, who we are requires us to talking about our relationship with others. So I really mm. like that. I might borrow it. <laughs> totally. So I won't patent it or anything. You can, you can steal that. <laughs> sure. Um, so my name is Sophie, as your listeners would now know, and I am a mom. I'm a single mom of my daughter. She's three years old and I'm a sociologist and a motherhood researcher. Um, so in really simple terms, I am fascinated and passionate in and about motherhood. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a business supporting women through their experiences of motherhood and helping to support those who work with mothers um, in understanding how motherhood is experienced in our society. And so I guess my personal and professional realms are really intertwined, mm. <laughs> intertwined in that way. Um, yeah, I'm really interested to ask, I'll get to it, but mm-hmm. how that all sort of worked out for you in terms of the work you did prior to having your daughter. Um, so talk me through the beginnings of your postpartum journey for those of you who might not know, let's just go there. (laughs) We just get into it. Right. Um, so I was married and I had, I was in the process of completing my PhD, um, when I fell pregnant and my PhD was in motherhood studies in sociology And uh, I was very fortunate to become pregnant really quickly and easily. And uh, it was something that my husband and I had planned for, I mean, from very early on in our relationship, we knew that that's something that we really wanted to have a family. And that was a a big life aspiration, I guess, for both of us. Mm. And and so I probably, I expected that I would have some troubles with conceiving because I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and very fortunately, I didn't. Um, and so the lead up to my post postpartum experience, I guess, was shaped by my experience of pregnancy um, and in trying to become as prepared as I could be for that postpartum period, while also recognising that in many ways, the journey would unfold in a way that I probably also couldn't prepare for. Mm. I kind of had recognition of that. Um, and so the, the part that I probably just get straight into it, right. There's not, um, there's, there's many ways that I could access this conversation, but in short, basically when I was, I was 41 and a half weeks pregnant. So, um, definitely very much on the countdown and I, uh, I was sensing some troubles in my relationship around the end of my pregnancy in feeling quite disconnected and that something wasn't quite right. And it was something that we talked about extensively. And um, I kind of put it down to the transitions into parenthood that we were embarking on and the transition um, into fatherhood for my partner. And I had this intuitive sense that something else was beneath the surface that I couldn't quite access. And I think I probably had that for a little while, you know, but I I wasn't able to um, confront it consciously Mm. until one night I couldn't get to sleep. And I just had this gut feeling that something was off. And I had this, I had this pull to look in my husband's phone, which Mm. I had never done. We were together about seven years. And, um, 
I felt very guilty for having that yearning, that sense of mistrust. Mm. And so I really grappled with that for a little while um, in bed (laughs) and he was asleep. And I ended up going to myself, you know what, Sophie, your instincts have always been right. Um, If you're getting such a strong intuition towards doing something, then follow that. And so I did. And what I discovered basically as soon as I opened his phone was evidence pretty much that he um, had been having an affair. Mm. And so in that moment, I, I kind of won't go into the full details of that, yeah. but I basically um, woke him up, confronted him, completely lost it. Like in that moment, basically everything unraveled for me. Mm. I knew in that moment, I think everything that had been suppressed subconsciously just came to the surface. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would be a single mom. I knew my Mm -hmm. marriage was over. I just, I had this explosion of realization Mm. in many ways. Um, And as that was happening, that confrontation with him was happening. That's when my labor started. Wow. Um, So (laughs) It's a very dramatic beginning. I had in my birth plan that when early labor started, I was planning on staying at home as long as I could and baking a cake for the baby. And <laughs> What's and that, that thing they say about when you make plans, God laughs or something? Yeah. Like you could yeah. not have planned for the situation that you were in at all. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Um, and And so I think at the time I didn't, I mean, I knew basically that something was going on with the baby. I probably could take a could safe to assume I was going into labor but obviously I've never been in labor before and Mm. I was concerned that maybe there was something wrong because the pain that I was experiencing was really horrific Mm. and um unrelenting and I had done the birth preparation and calm birth course and I I knew about the stages of labor and the contractions and what early labor was supposed to look like Mm. and it very much did not match that description and I was in um, a lot of pain. And, and so I called my sister to come and pick me up to take me to the hospital. Um, and kind of, I had a birth pool at home an inflatable one because I hired a private midwife, um, for my birth and I could birth in the hospital system with my private midwife. So I was going to bring the birth pool in case the hospital room didn't have one. Mm. And, um, I kind of just dragged that and a suitcase down the stairs, you know, like with my big pregnant bump, like distraught Mm. and, um, and yeah, like I like grazed the bottom of the, um, the birth pool, like all across the driveway and our neighbors would have been like, what is going on? Cause I was just hysterical. It was probably about midnight. Mm. Um, and my sister arrived to pick me up and yeah, that's, that's how my labor started. Wow. (laughs) So So it kind of sounds like maybe like the shock of the situation and probably I would imagine like the adrenaline sort of fight or flight that was happening within your body then sort of, um, kicked labor off for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think on a really unscientific level, um, my baby and I were in connection as such that she wasn't coming until I had that truth revealed. I, I don't think she was going to come into the world until 
something had happened. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the way I feel totally unprovable and unknowable. But <laughs> and as, a, a, as an academic researcher, I'm sure that bothers you. <laughs> no, it doesn't actually. Because no, I you think know. The, the more that you come to know about the way that science and research works, the more you realize you don't know. Mm. And, um, and to always come back to the anchoring knowledge that you know yourself best and mm. that, you know, motherhood and pregnancy labor, it's an embodied experience. And so, um, I really trust in, you know, my connection with myself. And I guess that the way that I went into labor for me really as devastating as it was, you know, another way of seeing it is it confirmed for me, um, the importance of trusting our in intuition mm. and our knowing. And I had no rational reason um, to do what I did that evening. It was something that was just niggling at me. Yeah. Um, and so that really, I mean, I tell that part of my story, even though we're talking about postpartum, because that's what, that's what completely shaped my postpartum. Oh, absolutely. And so what was it like for you in the first um, few days and weeks of postpartum being in that situation with your relationship, um, what was it like for you? Well, I was um, in the hospital and on that first night in the hospital, I basically, I would have had, you know, all of the hormones are, are running through you. And I, I pretty much had resolved within myself that everything would be okay. I was like, people get through this, you know, I am committed for life to this man and I trust in um, the goodness of who he is and that everyone makes mistakes. And I kind of had rationalized it in that way, not knowing any details. I mean, we'd had no conversation, nothing. Mm. All I knew was just the, the, what I saw in his phone. And I could even rationalize that away of thinking, you know, I don't know for sure anything actually happened, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, and so that's the headspace I was in when we went home from the hospital. Um, but in short, basically, my husband just shut down completely. Um, mm. So he wasn't—he wasn't even really in the bedroom with me when I was with my daughter, trying to, you know, trying to figure out breastfeeding mm. and all of that. It was just—we were just really disconnected, and the dynamic between us was such that um, he had basically just—he didn't know how to cope. He just shut down from mm. me and I felt as though, you know, this was not rational, but I felt as though I had done something wrong. Yeah. Um, I no. kind of felt as though I was the glue that was going to keep our marriage together and I just needed to be strong. And I remember it was on and I had my, my friends and my sister and my mom coming over in those first few days um, to offer support and my midwives who were amazing. And I remember going to the bathroom and it was day three mm. and I, a fun day for all <laughs> new mothers. <laughs> and, um, and he had just told me that um, he didn't love me anymore. And I went into the bathroom and I was crying. And I remember looking in the mirror and I, you know, drew on the intellectual side of my brain. And I was like, Sophie, you're just emotional because this is day three. Think of what your hormones are doing. <laughs> oh my God. And I, I was like, don't I don't know how you didn't chop his penis off to be quite oh. frank with you. It's like to, to come home under the same roof with someone that's yeah completely betrayed you. Like obviously yeah. there's no right or wrong in that circumstance. You just do what you have to do. But yeah. like, and look, I didn't know the full extent of things. And I also, um, 
I mean, I also trusted the man that I knew and loved. Like mm. he was my husband and my partner and my daughter's father. And, and you know, there's, I mean, I, I should also say that we're in a very different place now, her dad mm. and I, um, and that he's done a lot of his own um, inner work where obviously we're no longer together. Um, but I don't have the same feelings towards him now as I, yeah. as I did then in the, in a couple of years afterwards, but um, I recognized, and I think my mum, my mum saw this unfolding. She mm. was over every day and she witnessed the uh, disjuncture and lack of comfort that I felt um, and suggested to me, she said, Sophie, why don't you, um, you know, talk to my husband and say, if he needs some time, like, why don't you come, you and the baby, why don't you come and stay with me for a couple of days? Mm. Um, she lived, you know, 15 minutes away. And I expected to say that to him. And I expected him to say, no, what are you thinking? Of course not. Like, no. Mm. Um, but he didn't. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. And yeah. so then I kind of packed up a few of my things in some plastic bags thinking, oh, what stuff am I going to need? And I left and went to my mum's and the short part of <laughs> summarizing what is a long story is that I never went back. Like mm -hmm. that was it. I, we never lived together again. I ended up just going back to the house and, you know, I, I planned the um, nursery as many of us I'm for sure can relate to mm -hmm. where you plan everything out so meticulously and like, this is where the nappies are going to go. Yep. These are the singlets, yep. all of that. And I mean, that just, that was totally pointless. I just mm. was shoving stuff into plastic bags, little suitcases in bits and pieces and bringing stuff over to my mum's spare room. And I think it kind of really demonstrated to me um, how basic your needs are in that, in those few days and weeks um, and how a lot of the time it's not really the organization and the stuff that matters when you're doing the mothering work of it, but um, that doing that stuff is more just preparation for yourself mm. um, in the lead up so and how did you navigate because I can imagine you know after you've had a baby friends and family want to come and visit or they text you to say congratulations or they call and they I would assume that many of them would be unaware of the the circumstance of your relationship so how do you kind of navigate that in those early weeks or days or weeks you know, where you're also probably really sleep deprived and have so much going on hormonally to be, to then have to have these conversations about some really personal stuff. Yeah. Well, I, cause I mean, you're right. Like you're focusing so much on your baby. Like this is a new, a new person, a new human being, like this soul that you've been waiting to meet. And I was really, adamant with myself about not wanting to let what had happened ruin this experience. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it has totally colored that experience. It's, they're not, um, I'm not able to separate them. But at the time I was quite conscious of knowing that this is my, this is my one and only opportunity of ever getting to experience the transition to motherhood. This is my only opportunity ever to experience my firstborn daughter at one day old and five days old and 10 days old. And mm. um, so I really tried when people came to celebrate her, I really tried to allow space for just being with that. Um, and sort of, I think other people basically talked to each other 
um, yeah. rather than me telling people when it first happened and they would sort of, so they would come over knowing the background of what had happened, but none of us really knew for a hundred percent sure what was happening. And we kind of just framed it as we were having a break and that my husband was going through some stuff and mm -hmm. needed some time. And so um, that's the way it was framed. Um, but obviously as the weeks uh, went on, it, you know, things became clearer and clearer. Uh, but again, I had a, I had a family friend. Um, it was my mum, mum and dad's best man at their wedding. And he said to me, he was like, Sophie, I don't know how you're doing this. Like you're so, you know, you're so composed and you're so like, people would talk to me about it and I wouldn't burst out in tears or anything. I was just kind of speaking like this, mm -hmm. you know, and he was like, how are you holding it together? And I said to him, I was like, I'm just doing what I think Sophie would do. Yeah. Like, wow. I'm just doing what I feel as though I would do. And part of you almost like disassociates, I guess. And it's probably like that in many ways when we transition to motherhood, regardless, because it's a total, um, it's a total metamorphosis of self. Mm. And so I was going through that metamorphosis of self on a couple of different levels. Mm. Um, so yeah, in, in short, <laughs> in um, chopped bits of conversation is how it unfolded with family and friends. Yeah. So who did you sort of have around you as your village? I put in quotations, like obviously you had your mother with you. Mm. Um, who else did you have that was sort of there to support you through all of this? Uh, it was my mum and my sister. Um, my, my sister lived with my mum at the time. And so it was the three of us and my daughter. Um, my midwives were great. So as part of um, having an independent midwife, you get those follow-up checks for the first six weeks. And so when they would come and visit me, um, part of that included kind of um, debriefing and emotional support. Um, and I had, I had friends. I mean, I was the first one really, besides one friend, I was the first to have a baby in my friendship groups. Um, so, so this was a new experience for mm. most of my friendship group, but they were really supportive in that if I ever needed someone to talk to, um, you know, they were there and I had lots of people that I could go to to vent about. But at the same time, everyone was going through their own adjustment to what had happened because... Mm. They also had relationships with my, my ex-husband and uh, were in, everyone was in shock and disbelief basically. So they were doing their own processing too. Yeah. Everyone's sort of going through their own, almost like a grief process. Yeah. Um, how did you go with things like breastfeeding and that kind of stuff? just interested because I'm obsessed yeah. with breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> breastfeeding was a, a really big challenge for me. Um, mm. I, I had troubles in the hospital, um, in getting her to latch. I was expressing colostrum and giving it to her in a syringe. I was, you know, the, the midwives in the hospital were great, but was so busy and overworked that I would kind of had her screaming and I couldn't latch her. And I really struggled that first night in hospital. Um, and at home, similarly, I was having a lot of pain and I knew from 
before I became a mother, I knew that breastfeeding wasn't just this natural, easy thing that women got. I, I knew that it would take likely take work and that it can involve discomfort mm. um, when you're first adjusting to it. And so the pain that I was having, I put down to discomfort that was normal. Um, and But every time she went to feed, I would just dread it. I would just like, she would, I would be on the verge of tears every time. It was so painful. Yeah. And the midwives checked her latch and they're like, her latch looks good. You know, her latch looks fine. She was breastfeeding, you know, as they do all the time. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until my, I think it was my two week checkup and my midwife saw my nipples and they had huge like cuts in them. Mm. And she sort of said, oh my goodness, like you, you need shields on and we need to get you some extra help and support. Like this is not, there's something wrong, basically. Mm. It should not be that painful. And then I went on a journey, basically, of getting her checked. I went to a couple of different lactation consultants and everyone was a bit stumped because her latch looked fine. Mm. And it looked fine, but I was getting the pain. Yeah. Um, we ended up seeing a speech pathologist who said she had a tongue tie. We got the tongue tie cut. Um, I, you know, I'm ambivalent about that. Mm. Um, we were on shields then. I just kept using the shields after the tongue tie because I was too scared not mm. to. I was yeah. like, I can't handle this pain. Mm. Um, and so I used the shields actually for three months. And then one night I remember thinking, I'll just try and put her on without them. And I was so nervous <laughs> watching her. I was like, just try and relax. Mm-hmm. And then it was fine. Um, so after that, after about three to four months, um, it, it got a lot easier and mm. I'm still actually breastfeeding her. She's, she turned three in July. That's so amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that sounds like a pretty rocky journey into mm. establishing your breastfeeding and yeah, it is such a difficult thing to kind of, yeah, it's not a, na- like, it's a natural thing, but it's a learned skill, but it sounds like there, you know, was some stuff going on there for you. Um, mm. but obviously you managed to work through it because you're now breastfeeding a toddler. Um, yeah. As am I. So go us. Hey, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's got its challenges, but I definitely, I mean, I would have said to anyone who asked early on breastfeeding is the hardest part of my motherhood. So mm. far, I would have said that it was, I found it really did. And she wasn't just feeding like, you know, every, I remember downloading one of those trackers, which oh, yeah. was just, Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, there's issues there. <laughs> oh my goodness. I was just spending all my time feeding it and feeding her and tracking it. And yeah, like, oh my gosh, she fed half an hour ago. And which side? And it was, oh, it's all consuming, isn't it? Mm. I yeah. know. You, I think as a first time mum as well, like there's a lot of pressure on you to make sure that your baby's being fed every, you know, three hours or whenever they appear hungry. And then you're worried that they're not getting enough milk. And so you start using the trackers and then you just start obsessing about numbers. I was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, delete the apps. I think is the message there and just trust that, you know, your body knows what it's doing and so does your baby. Um, Yeah. So Obviously, your your former life as a an academic and a researcher and a sociologist was all sort of around motherhood. How did you go then transitioning to motherhood? I guess because you've done all this work around motherhood. Um, how did you kind of was it what you were expecting, or 
was it completely different? Like, obviously there's some variables at play. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right? Because I knew, I, I said to my midwife in one of our pregnancy appointments, when she was asking me about my conceptions of motherhood. And I said, I've read enough to know that reading enough isn't going to prepare you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I had my, my thesis was focused on um, really motherhood in terms of our cultural construction and perception of motherhood and our sense of self and identity and our relationships. Um, so in terms of the actual practical stuff, in terms of how do newborns sleep, how does breastfeeding like that stuff? I was, I would not claim expertise in mm-hmm. um, at the time. I remember when my daughter was about three months old and um, now I know based on the research that three months is actually the, um, the peak in the first 12 months of when they are sleeping the longest stretches usually. Mm. Um, but at the time when she started sleeping a bit longer, sort of a four or five hour stretch, I, I thought to myself, you know, taking this moment, like appreciate the night feeds because they'll probably, they'll probably taper off soon and you won't do night feeds anymore. <laughs> I say this as I still feed oh, at night. Sophie. <laughs> you look back, I always like look back at, I've had similar experiences where I'm like, oh, Steph. <laughs> you just do so I, I don't mean when I said, oh, Sophie is like a condescending thing, but like, it's like, oh, little Sophie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And look, I think that that is a real failure on behalf of our um, culture and education around you know, prenatal education in, in not having actually um, biologically appropriate understandings of infant sleep mm. um, is a big one. That was a big one for me in my journey mm. uh, and appropriate support in terms of um, postpartum recovery, you know, postpartum depletion, the kind of um, physiological and hormonal shifts that we go through in those early days, weeks, months, and yes, years. So um, that aspect of things was was new to me. I had to really feel my way through all of that. And I had a lot of learning curves. Um, I think in terms of my expectations around the ways that motherhood would change me uh, in terms of my identity, sense of self, and how it's a complete transformation of everything in your life. I, I had intellectual understanding of that. I, I knew about matrescence. I knew about um, ambivalence in motherhood. I knew, I knew all of that stuff and I've re- written and researched on all of that. So um, that didn't surprise me so much, but I think it's because of the change in my relationship that I went through that it basically just obliterated any preconceptions I had because just, mm-hmm my whole environment and landscape and everything had just completely shuttered and had to be rebuilt. So in that way, um, I very much was really unprepared <laughs> for, um, for what it was like. Well, that's the thing though. Like, how can you prepare for that? You can, you can read all of the things and, you know, as much as you would have researched all these different topics. Yeah. You can't plan for, what you experienced so I think maybe in um you know discovering motherhood for you you probably discovered a lot about yourself as well yeah yeah and I think I think many of us do I think it is a transition um that that challenges you and um calls forth parts within you that you didn't know existed and um that yeah that's kind of part of what it means to transition into motherhood it's just Mm. obviously different factors influence each of our different journeys 
Mm. Even when you said earlier about how you kind of disassociated from um, the situation that you were in with, with your husband, like that's almost like a survival mode um, mechanism for you to yeah. be able to continue being a mother, which is kind of incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to think to myself sometimes, um, like I had no time to grieve or mm. cry. Mm. Um, and sometimes like he would come over and hold my daughter while I had a shower and she would just be screaming, you know, she always had to be on me. Mm. Um, and, and I would be in the shower and I'd be like, I'd start crying and then I'd be like, I have to stop crying because I have to get out of the shower in a minute. She needs me. Mm. And so I really, um, I have a different understanding and approach to it now, but at the time I very much felt as though I needed to hold myself together in order to be there for her and a mother. And that basically if I let myself fall apart, I just, that would be it. Like Mm. I wouldn't be able to get myself back together. And, and that started to, um, there's only so long that you can hold that before you do start to fall apart. And that probably started to happen around the sort of four to five, six month mark. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I started um, having to confront that grief, I suppose. So before that it was very much survival mode. Yeah. Um, you've helped a lot of mums on social media because you, you're really are an open book. You share so much wisdom and so much, um, solidarity with new mums and seasoned mothers, (laughs) Who was someone that you were able to look up to when you were navigating uh, early motherhood? Well, my mum, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum is an incredible woman and she, uh, she, her experience of early motherhood was very different to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, she had, was in a really supportive relationship. My dad was wonderful. Um, and, but he got diagnosed with motor neurone disease which is a terminal illness when my sister was one and I was four, almost five. Mm. And so she was told that dad only had three to five years to live. And so she basically throughout her motherhood experience and her experience of having a family um, had to exercise resilience and had to keep herself together and also fall apart and put yourself back together. And so I really, um, drew so much strength from her and she was such um, an enormous, enormous pillar of strength and support for me. Um, and I would say actually that it was older women who, who were my pillars. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a mentor, a, a colleague and a number of colleagues, actually motherhood studies, uh, scholars and researchers who reached out to me and I, they sent me really supportive emails um, and pieces of wisdom that I would screenshot and save and read their words, you know, when I felt I needed to. Um, so it was women who, who probably around the 50s and 60s and 70s um, who had wisdom to offer me that I really, yeah, I really drew from. It's mm, amazing. Um, you mentioned biologically normal infant sleep. And so I'm wondering what sleep was like for you, I guess, post three months. Um, Yeah. What was your experience like? (laughs) 
have got like a two-part podcast series okay well everyone just go listen to that (laughs) (laughs) because I say that because if I were to tell you all the details you'd probably be here for like four hours but like in in short it was so challenging because I got sucked into sleep training culture of Mm -hmm. this is what a baby should do Mm -hmm. and that you need to teach your baby how to sleep Mm -hmm. and that if you don't teach your baby how to sleep you are failing your baby in some way you're depriving them and just get it together, you know, buy more resources, try more techniques, do more researching. And so I really got swept up in all of that around four months, when she was about four months old, of course, as well. Like we know what happens to baby sleep around four months. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in short, sleep training just totally made everything a thousand times worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really hit a rock bottom with my mental health. And I found the Beyond Sleep Training Project on Facebook. And that's when things started to shift for me in terms of my expectations and understandings of infant sleep. Mm. But I had this sense that there was something else going on for my daughter because she would just scream and scream and scream. And she would go from peacefully sleeping to just screaming. And I felt like there was something wrong. And basically from around that point when she was, say, five or so months Um, until she was 20 months old, I was on this massive journey of trying to figure out what was going on because I would take her to GPs and pediatricians and doctors and show videos of what she would do when she would wake. And she was waking like every, some nights, every half an hour. Mm. Like it wasn't just, oh, every two hours, she needs a bit of a feed and goes back to sleep. She's waking all of the time. Mm. And, um, and it just totally controlled my entire life. Like that's Mm. what my life was. It was just dealing with her sleep or lack of sleep. And I went to like Chinese herbalists and doctors and went through all of the alternative medicine paths and, you know, chiropractors, osteos, everything you could think of. I tried and um, I thought she had like emotional healing stuff from her birth and everything that happened with her dad. So it was a whole thing. Mm. And I thought originally as well, it might have something to do with her ears because she would pull at them when she would cry. And I thought it was teething. Um, Had her ears checked by multiple GPs. They said it was fine. And I ended up when she was about, I'd go through periods of going, you've got to keep researching. So if you keep investigating, and then I would reach this point of like saturation and I'd say, just stop look researching, just deal with it. And then it'd mm. get so bad again that I'd research again. Um, and I took her to an ENT, ear, nose and throat specialist, um, just because they were one of the specialists I hadn't seen yet. And I was like, may as well rule it out. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> and he looked in both her ears and was like, oh, yeah, she's got glue ear in both her ears. I was like, oh, sorry, what? Mm. Um, and he said, yep, she'll like need to get grommets. You need to go off and get her a hearing test. And the hearing test showed that she'd lost, um, fo- well, she had no hearing in her right ear and wow. limited hearing in her left ear. So unbeknownst to me, it had been affecting her language development, her ability to like her balance and everything. But she was always a child who met milestones really early. And so it was never picked up on because she ticked the boxes. Mm, yep. Um, so she had surgery for that. And um, I also, I also at the same time came across a few different um, 
parenting approaches. One's called aware parenting and looking at um, supported crying. So being with your child, similar to how we are with our children, um, our toddlers when they're tantruming, um, looking at ways crying can also be like an emotional release for mm. um, some children and babies, supported crying, so not leaving our babies alone. Um, but yeah, so I, they kind of coincided with all of that and the surgery, uh, I noticed improvements from there on. She wasn't screaming the way that she was in her sleep um, and things basically just got better and better from, mm -hmm. from there on. So I'm, I always, I am a big advocate for um, biologically normal infant sleep and I, I will sing the praises of that and like push that education and I'm so passionate about that. But I think that has to be paired with trusting your um, yourself and your baby. In if you feel as though there's something not quite right or something to investigate further, um, to to follow that as well. Yeah. And I think your your gut and your instinct as a mother is very strong, but it's so easy to push it aside because there are people and businesses and companies who want to sell you the products and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, you kind of, you have to keep um, in tune with your instinct like you were obviously for a very long time, but just without any kind of answers. Mm. Um, and you get, you doubt yourself all the time. Like I was completely filled with self doubt all the time. Mm. And because you come up against every single obstacle there is and our culture and society, um, we kind of train women out of trusting themselves and mothers in particular. And so I, I definitely struggled with that. Um, yeah, I had a lot of, of doubt and went through a lot in that process. Mm. But yeah. I know I, it sounds horrible and I really feel for you because it can be um, such a lonely thing as well when you know you're the one that's googling all of the things and you're the one that's worried all the time and um and all you want to do is help your baby um you don't want to see them crying and upset and screaming every night um so yeah you're trying to do what's best but it can be really challenging yeah and it's all on you right like it feels it, I mean, it is like it's it's all on your shoulders and mm. it can be a heavy weight to carry when did you go back to work after having your daughter? Well, I submitted my PhD when I was six months pregnant and I got my letter confirming that I'd received it a week before she was born. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I was on a scholarship for my PhD and, and casual teaching. And so I had planned to go back to university teaching uh, when she was about a year old and then look at doing a postdoc or getting an academic position, but that all kind of, um, I mean, that changed because of my circumstances in becoming a single parent. Um, and I started to question kind of the life that I wanted to live. Um, and so I picked up like a few little casual things here and there, research um, positions. And that was after she was 12 months. She was probably closer to 18 months old. Um, and then I started my business when she was two. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I find it hard to answer questions about the whole work thing because even now I'm, I don't really identify with either label of, oh, a working mother or a stay-at-home mother. Like I think sometimes those labels are really arbitrary and mm. can kind of box us in, even though we draw on them in practical terms to try and describe our lived experience. Mm. So, um, 
if you could plan for your postpartum again, how would it be different from what you experienced? Um, well, if I had a magic wand, I would make a lot of things. <laughs> I know, I would wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> um, but given the circumstances I, I was in, if I could do things differently, I, I would have for sure hired a postpartum doula. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have for sure, um, without a doubt, because even though I had my mom and sister living with me, um, like they were going through their own challenges and mm. We were having massive family disruption. We also had to move house when she was, my daughter was three months old. And Mm -hmm. so we had a lot going on and um, I really would have valued to be able to have someone that also that I had, I had paid to know like it's their job. Like I don't have to feel guilty or like I'm taking up someone's time and asking for help. Like I'm paying for help. It's their job to come in and do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I would have, I would have done that. I also, I, I would have um, trusted my baby more, which like might sound strange, but I would have just trusted in her and I and our connection and not have worried so much about it, but also have been a bit more boundaried in, um, in what information I allowed to come into my space and what advice I took on and when enough is enough, you know, being able to stand up and say that. Um, mm. So, yeah, a few things, I guess, both <laughs> conceptual and not. I think we all look back and, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but, you know, it. I've said this quite a few times in this podcast already, like it's so hard to plan for this stuff. And I, th- I see um, a lot of women's, uh, second experience of postpartum a lot more positive than their first because that's where you're learning all of the lessons, right? And so the second time round and maybe the third time round, if that's the path you go down, you have the knowledge and the experience to be like, okay, this is what I'm going to do differently. So, mm. yeah. yeah. It is what it is. And, I mean, I don't really reflect much on if I were to go back and do things differently, how would I do them? Because I think a lot of the time, sometimes it can be instructive and useful, but I think a lot of the time it can um, just kind of keep us living with a foot in the past and can be, you know, kind of anxiety producing or um, provoking of, of extra grief and, and loss of putting mm. ourselves through thinking about how things could have been different. Yeah. You can't beat yourself up. Like you can't go back and change it. So Yeah. Do you kind of feel like your daughter was born at the exact right time, you know, from when, you know, it could have been a week earlier, it could have been a week later. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking about it and I'm like, there's just this divine timing that's going on in this story. Yeah, I I do think so. Um, Also probably adding to that context is my dad passed away in March of 2016 (sighs) and I found out I was pregnant on his birthday in November of 2016. Um, And so, and I see a lot of, uh, I see a lot of dad's traits in my daughter. And so, yeah, I I do think that, um, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes am skeptical of the whole narratives about like it's meant to be or it's fate or all of that. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that can be like a a bit dismissive of of some people's um, 
experiences or pain. But at the same time, I also think there's great power in being able to draw meaning from what's happened to us and yeah. to be able to see the bigger purpose and um, to recognize that there are always things that come out of our experiences that we weren't anticipating or expecting that mm. are a real gift. So, mm. um, yeah, that's certainly how I see her birth and the timing of how she came into our lives. Yeah. So sorry to hear about your dad. Um, I can't imagine what that would be like you know, especially with a new baby and all of that sort of stuff. It's like extreme joy, but also extreme sadness, I would imagine. Yeah, I, um, she, my pregnancy really was the first time that I felt joy or felt able to imagine a future since we lost dad. Like when you lose somebody in your life who is so instrumental and foundational, it just obliterates everything and you can't even you can't even imagine a future without them in it. Like, you know how people say sometimes, I don't know what I do without this person, or I can't imagine my life without this person or, you know, but then when you lose that person that Mm -hmm. you say you can't imagine life without that becomes your reality. Like that is your life without that person. And it's really, really hard to conceptualize that. And even now, like my family, we find it hard to believe we're living here in this world without dad. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, definitely pregnancy and having my daughter in our lives has enabled, um, enabled us to see things with color again. And she's brought so much joy to our lives. Um, but you know, it, yeah, that's the nature of grief, right? It's, Mm. it's really complex. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please come over and say hi on Instagram. That's where I like to hang out. Uh, my handle is at postpartum underscore with underscore Steph, S-T-E-P-H. That's where I'll be sharing podcast episode updates too. Hope to chat to you soon.